again, fellow travellers, and welcome to Podcast 77 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder, both of us with our feet planted firmly on the ground in various parts of South London. Today, though, Podcast 77 rhymes with heaven, and we're taking a journey <laughs> into space, looking up at the stars in the company of Dr. John Mason, MBE, astronomer extraordinaire, and two years ago chosen by The Independent as one of the five most inspiring explorers. Um, sadly, Mick, I think you just must have missed the cut at six. Hello, John. Hello, and it's uh, well lovely to be talking about uh, a subject that I'm very passionate about, astronomical travel and the stars in general. Well, that's great, John, and I'm looking forward to hearing more, though I should just say that uh, I think, Simon, my epic trip through South London to find the source of the River Wandle should actually move me up the leaderboard a bit. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that afterwards. Um, we, we are aiming higher today. Anyway, John, uh, just before we uh, get on to uh, heavenly journeys, we should catch up on a few terrestrial journeys, which listeners kindly told us about on Twitter after last week's podcast about those first formative steps abroad. We'll be returning to these in a in a later podcast, but uh, as a taster, let's hear about a couple of school trips. Rebecca remembers one to Russia, staying in those huge Soviet hotels and the sleeper train from St. Petersburg to Moscow. So fascinating and different. Well, Marie opted for luxury in the form of a school cruise around the Med on the SS Uganda in 1977, which will stay with her forever. Blew my mind at that age I hadn't been anywhere. All the amazing sights, cultures and different languages, taking in Naples, Egypt, Israel, Rhodes, ending in Venice. I actually had um, a friend called Geoffrey Hale at university who went on at some point to get a job as a teacher on the uh, SS Uganda. He was a very snappy dresser and I used to borrow his clothes, which were a little bit tight, in order to go for interviews. Uh, but I wonder what happened to him and more to the point, what happened to the SS Uganda, which I think was a very good idea. I don't think it's still around, but uh, John, did you have any um, exotic uh, sort of mind-altering school trips? Well, in the 1960s, school trips weren't particularly exotic. Um, I did um, two trips. One was to Austria and the other was to France. But the Austrian one was notable because it was at the time of the 1966 World Cup. <laughs> and I actually watched the 1966 World Cup final as a schoolboy in a bar surrounded by German-speaking Austrians who, oh. you can imagine, were all supporting Germany. But they were all <laughs> incredibly gracious when uh, we finally won at the end of the uh, at that game. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a really notable thing. I, I was fascinated to hear about um, Maria's uh, accounting of the Mediterranean. Um, I never went on one of those school cruises. But um, I did do a number of trips to, to Russia in the 1980s. And I also travelled on the sleeper train, uh, this train from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And uh, I was in a sleeper with um, three Russians. And I didn't speak a word of Russian. They didn't speak a word of English. But one of them had a chess set and got out a pocket chess set. And, and we played uh, games of chess uh, ah. in the night 
on that sleeper train and uh, shows that, uh, you know, what an international language you can often have without even speaking the language. I hope you didn't play for money, John, because uh, I, 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 <laughs> I gather that um, uh, Russians tend to be uh, <laughs> devils when it comes to chess. No, they were absolutely delightful. <laughs> Good. Well, look, you've uh, scored, um, I, I think, um, more than any previous guest in coming up with um, a, a, a location having watched the 1966 <laughs> World Cup final. So uh, uh, good good, um, good points there. My most exotic school trip, by the way, was to the Ford factory in <laughs> Dagenham uh, on the same day as we went later to the uh, Stock Exchange in London. And we were invited by our very much left-leaning um, sociology and economics teachers. Yes, Quite this right, was a school too. in Sussex, in your <laughs> home county. Um, we, we, we were invited to draw our own um, conclusions about the unfairness of capitalism. There we are. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to mention this so that John doesn't have to. If any schools are interested in a trip across the cosmos, then the South Downs Planetarium is the place to start. And if your luck is in, Dr. John Mason, who co-created it, um, will be your guide across the universe. John, I'm going to book myself in because I'm very sorry to say uh, I haven't actually been there. You can go as an individual, can't you? Indeed, you can. You just have to book uh, on the website. It's not a problem at all. We do public show. In fact, I've got a public show over this afternoon. Oh, right. OK, I probably um, can't make it this afternoon, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look for a, a later date. Uh, well, I don't know much about the, the planetarium, but I do... Vaguely recalled that um, Sir Patrick Moore was was linked with it. That's right, isn't it? It is. Um, Sir Patrick was our first patron, um, and uh, I mean, it, Sir Patrick has a major role to play in my life because uh, I, I became interested in astronomy at the age of seven. It wow. was, in fact, exactly <laughs> sixty years mm. ago this very month <laughs> that I became interested in astronomy when I saw a, a very bright meteor, a bright shooting star in the sky, and I wanted to know what it was. And my mother went to the library and got me a little book out, and then for my eighth birthday. My sister bought me the Observer's Book of Astronomy, written oh. by Patrick. It cost half a crown. And I must have read that book half a dozen times. I was absolutely fascinated. And I was lucky enough that in 1968, Sir Patrick moved, well, he was Patrick then, moved to Selsey in West Sussex. I was going to school in Chichester. And um, I picked up the phone one day and I phoned him up. And to my amazement, he answered the phone. And I said, you know, I'm a, a young boy interested in astronomy. Can I come down and look through the telescope? And he said, come down next clear night. And I did. And he was a friend of mine for, for 45 years until he died. And he was undoubtedly my, my mentor and probably the reason I'm talking to you two guys now. Ah, God. Well, I've, in that case, met you relatively recently in your astronomical uh, life, uh, John. It was the 24th of October, 1995. I can pin it down to that time. And this place, Fatapa Sikri, uh, an ancient Indian fort uh, about 25 miles from Agra and the Taj Mahal. And of course, that date wasn't random. It was a total eclipse of the sun. Um, most people will see... No total solar eclipses in their life. How many have you seen, John? And um, out of curiosity, how did that Indian one rate? Well, I'm on uh, 19 at the moment. 
hoping that I might uh, see number 20 by the end of this year. You never know your luck. Um, but uh, that rated pretty interestingly because the, the Indian total eclipse on, in October 1995 was the fifth total that I'd seen uh, at that stage. And um, it was the mm. shortest I'd seen because the length of totality was only 45 seconds. And this is because the apparent size of the moon and the apparent size of the sun were very, very close in to each other. And it meant that the length of totality was relatively short. Now, um, that has the advantage in that you can see a lot more detail around the edge of the dark disk of the moon, uh, in the inner parts of the sun's outer atmosphere, the corona. There were lots of prominences all the way around. And there wasn't a single cloud in the sky. And it was the first total that I'd seen, number five, where there were no clouds in the sky at all. And it was an amazing experience at Fatipur Sikri. We were on the, the ramparts around the, the caravan Zirai uh, looking out. We had an amazing view. Actually, you're beginning to convince me that I possibly ought to be a bit more interested because although, on the whole, if I am somewhere uh, where it is uh, easy to see uh, uh, heavenly bodies and interesting things like meteor showers. Uh, I really do enjoy looking at them, but I really don't think that I've ever um, gone out of my way, i.e. travelled to uh, a place in order to see something in the sky. I mean, are there are there lots of you who, who do there that, There are, John? and the number is dramatically increasing. So-called astro-tourism I think is really catching on. And it can be as simple as journeying to a nice dark place in the UK to find a place where you can camp out and see the sky really well away from city lights and air pollution. Or it can be travelling halfway around the world for, you know, a brief total eclipse of the sun. And the shortest total eclipse I've ever seen, by the way, was on the 4th of December 2002 at Woomera in South Australia, where I travelled halfway across the world for 28 seconds of totality. And people say, you must be mad. They're probably right. <laughs> so so the absolute minimum, that is um, two hours in the air for every second of that. But look, I, I, th these things, Mick, are addictive because after that first experience um, in this old mogul fort, um, uh, I, I, I wrote... Uh, uh, for the painfully finite seconds of totality, you and your fellow watchers are smothered by a blanket of awe and humility as the heavens show their hand. The meek moon reveals briefly its power to suppress a swaggering sun, which can but fare feebly behind the solid black disc. This is a demonstration of astronomical contempt that will live with you forever. And since then, I've done all I can to see more um, eclipses. The 1999 one, which, um, as John will uh, uh, remind us, was the last time for, I think, decades that uh, uh, the UK will experience a, a, a total eclipse. Uh, it was a bit of a washout. I took the boat across to um, Dieppe, which was right under the line of uh, totality, but uh, it was cloudy but exciting. Um, how many of yours have been um, have been lost to the weather, John? Really, only two. Um, 
And Cornwall was one of them on the 11th of August, 1999. Um, but I've been pretty lucky, really. Um, it, you know, you can travel you know, halfway across the world and, and be clouded out. And that, and that can be obviously a bit dispiriting, to say the least. But um, you, you just have to know these are it's like all these things. These are natural phenomena. And it's a bit like, you know, going on a safari. You know, you might get up at four o'clock in the morning and, and have seen the big five within the first hour. Or you can go out and spend three hours going around in the bush and not see a single lion or, or anything other than maybe, you know, maybe a honey badger somewhere. And, and that's what it's like. Astronomical tourism is always going to be you need luck because you're dealing with real phenomena under a real sky and the weather may not always cooperate. Indeed, sometimes the phenomena themselves don't, don't cooperate. You just have to be ready for that. Do you actually have time or build in time to look around the place where you're um, seeing or not seeing the, uh, the eclipse? It's absolutely essential. Because there are two things that make the total eclipse experience. The first is the actual event itself, which, I mean, I think Simon's words are fabulous. They really are. I've yeah, did he write it himself? Before. I was very impressed. <laughs> well, it's, they really are fabulous words and they sum it up. I've described a total eclipse of the sun as an assault on all of the senses at once. And that is what it is. It's an amazing thing. But the other thing that makes the experience location, location, location. It is very important to pick the right place. It is absolutely vital that you observe this wonderful natural phenomenon in beautiful surroundings. And it might be the built surroundings like Fatipur Sikri. It might be an amazing scenic location. It might be in the middle of a desert, which has beauty uh, all of its own. It, all of these experiences are different. And every single of the 19 total eclipses that I've seen, it is the location that has made the experience as much as the eclipse itself. Well, your, your enthusiasm is certainly contagious, John. Um, and it's reminded me, actually, that uh, I have enjoyed three or four times um, when on holiday in rural France, the um, famous Perseid uh, meteor shower, which is coming up soon, I think, isn't it? It is. Now, rural France is a great place for stargazing because rural France has a lot of very open areas far from big towns and cities where there aren't many lights. And I've done a lot of trips to rural France for, for stargazing. In the summer, the Milky Way is absolutely superb. And as you say, every August, we get treated to the Perseid meteor shower. And this year, 2021, it's going to be very good because there's not going to be a bright moon in the sky to drown out all but the brightest meteors. Oh, so yes. um, on the 11th, 12th and 13th of August this year, if you can find yourself a clear, dark spot, go out, get yourself some sun loungers and enjoy the free show because at this time of year every year the earth plows through this filament of dust left behind by a comet long ago and uh, the dust grains burn up in the atmosphere something like uh, 60 70 miles above the ground dashing into the atmosphere at 135,000 miles an hour and at that speed even a tiny grain can spark the heavens and it is a great show
Oh, it really is. And I must say it is it is addictive. And I agree with you about the the sun loungers or should we call them star loungers? But um, <laughs> uh, because actually, if you just uh, stand up and uh, and look uh, after a bit, you will get the most awful crick in the neck. So lying down, uh, preferably not on the wet ground at our age, why, hence the star loungers, and with friends, so you can argue about whether that was a meteor or whether it was, or whether it was a passing satellite or even the uh, um, 2010 to, uh, from Lyon to uh, somewhere, <laughs> to, to uh, Washington. Um, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, where, whereabouts are you going to be for this, John? Um, I'm actually going. Uh, the wife and I and the dog are going to rural <laughs> Shropshire, um, which is a nice dark area of the country. Um, and obviously, we're not going anywhere far flung at the present time. So we're heading up to rural Shropshire. We've uh, rented a little place for the week, and uh, on the top of a hill there, I'm going to set up my cameras and uh, our star lounges. And uh, we're going to enjoy the show. John, I presume you've seen the uh, Northern Lights. Um, are they, if you do manage to see them, and I must say various friends of mine have spent very large amounts of money, I thought anyway, going to, the, going to see them and uh, not really seeing them much at all. But um, are they, if you see them at their best, are they the most spectacular of the, uh, of the heavenly displays on offer? It's pretty hard. I'm not going to be drawn into what's the most <laughs> spectacular, a total eclipse of the sun, a meteor storm, or um, the northern lights. I've seen, I'm lucky enough to have seen them all. And they are all amazing spectacles. Meteor showers, when you see the Perseids, are, are beautiful. But when you see a meteor storm, when there are thousands of shooting stars an hour, and there's one a second, that is really something awesome. So is a total eclipse under perfect conditions. And so are the northern lights. Now, I've been taking people up into the Arctic to see the northern lights for, I guess, 35 years or so. I've been to Alaska, northern Canada, Iceland, and the far north of Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And in fact, this is the first, the, the last um, winter was the first winter for a quarter of a century that I haven't gone up into the Arctic to see the Northern Lights oh. because of the pandemic. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, this autumn, all being well, I should be off again up to Northern Iceland to try and see them again because they are a wonderful spectacle. Now, you did say try to see them again. How do you manage expectations or do you have to manage expectations with a group of people who really want to go and see these things? You need to give people the facts. You need to tell them what is happening. And you need to say that first off, our eyes are not designed to see colour when the light level is low. So generally, when you first see a Northern Lights display, there won't be any colour visible to the eye. It'll look greyish. The camera will show it beautifully, but your eyes won't. It's only when a Northern Lights display becomes more active, more vibrant, then you can see colour. And green is the most common colour, but you get reds, you get pinks, you get purples. And sometimes those colours are only visible for a fleeting glimpse. And you've got to persevere. Too many people go up into the Arctic, stand outside for an hour in the freezing cold, (laughs) don't see anything, and then say, oh, well, there's tomorrow night. I go up there and I spend 10 hours outside. 
and and you know you've got to be well dressed appropriately dressed patience perseverance that's what matters with seeing the northern lights because it's not like a total eclipse where you know precisely when it's going to occur and where to the second this is something which is much less easy to predict and you've got to be in the right place and you've got to be there when the sky is dark and clear but you don't necessarily know when or if they're going to appear Now, besides these great phenomena, um, it's also worth pointing out that observatories themselves are also often stupendously good tourist attractions. Um, For example, Jodrell Bank in uh, Cheshire and the Lovell Telescope there, which um, uh, began, uh, I think, World Heritage Site in 2019. And it's right beside the uh, crew to Manchester railway line. Um, But uh, as the sign outside says, in touch with the universe 24 hours a day. And there's this wonderful collection of effectively um, army surplus military cast-offs um, from which a, a radio telescope 250 feet across um, peers into the depths of um, of space. And I believe um, the, the story is that the, the project nearly bankrupted the entire city of Manchester, but well worth seeing if you're uh, if if you're in the um, uh, crew area um, and across in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. Again, the most stunning observatory it happens to be in a beautiful place where you not only can you gaze up at the night sky, you can also look across with the best vantage point anywhere of um, that great city. Mick, you've got a couple of favourites too, I think. Well, there are a couple of places that uh, I fondly remember. I mean, mainly for the location. Um, La Palma, which is uh, one of the smaller uh, Canary Islands and a very, very beautiful one uh, is is the place that I think many European countries have chosen to um, site their, um, well, I think they're telescopes more than observatories. And they're right on top of this um, volcanic uh, mountain with the most astonishing um, plants and beautiful views down into the crater with sort of cloudscapes rolling in and uh, and views of the sea and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I don't know what you see up in the sky, but it certainly is a lovely place. And the other place is somewhere where I went with Simon, which um, the Peak du Midi de Bigorre in um, southwest France. And you can, uh, you can actually um, cheat and get the cable car up there, but we actually walked up there. Um, and there is actually a very nice observatory right at the top, which sort of shows you how the stars... Um, as they see them from uh, from the Peak du Midi, which is getting on for 3,000 metres tall, how the stars um, change um, across the seasons. I remember that was very nice, but um, uh, I'm sure you've seen many more, John. I mean, I've done a lot of tours too, major observatories around the world on, on nearly every continent. And uh, as you say, they are uh, amazing structures. Very often the engineering behind them is incredible, as well as the science that goes on there. Some of these telescopes are amazing constructions. Um, and the observatories are, as you say, sited in some of the most beautiful locations. They are remote. They are generally high up or they're in the middle of deserts or islands in the middle of oceans. And uh, the peak 
think Eumedia is a fabulous one perched on the Pyrenees as it is. And uh, the La Palma observatories, um, as you say, many European countries, including the United Kingdom, have contributed there. And uh, I actually did a, a Blue Peter special from the La Palma <laughs> Observatory many, many years ago when I was a, a, a younger man. And uh, we did a fabulous program up there where we showed people the telescopes and talked about how they were solving the mysteries of the universe. And I remember blowing up a large balloon with dots on it to show how, as the universe expanded, galaxies move away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I'm sure that's in the BBC archives That's, that's very brilliant, but presumably the Big Bang, if it had exploded, would have been at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. Uh, um, uh, but no, I, I'm sure I recall hearing the words on that uh, programme uh, from John. Um, and here's a universe I prepared earlier. <laughs> now, uh, John, I presume that the astronomical travel business has been hit as hard by the uh, uh, as the rest of the travel industry by the coronavirus pandemic. Have you you've missed a lot? I presume. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, the I was due to go and see the total eclipse in Argentina on the 14th of December last year. And although I'd done all the groundwork, I'd visited, got the site and everything, unfortunately, that tour wasn't able to go. Um, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, to see the eclipse, the total eclipse in Antarctica wow. on the 4th of December this year. But again, that's looking a bit iffy. And as I've said, all of my Northern Lights tours last winter, autumn, winter were cancelled and lots of other trips that I was hoping to do. So I'm really hoping to get back into it this um, autumn and winter. But with so many people staying at home and with the last last year's spring and summer being so fabulously clear and with much less air pollution, with no traffic on the roads, with no aircraft flying overhead, a lot of people began to experience the night sky in this country for the first time. And so astro-tourism, dark sky tourism in Britain is something, again, which is really taking off. And, and I've had a number of occasions where people have booked me to take them on a, a, a night sky walk or to, to show them the sky from the South Downs or wherever. Um, so I think there's a lot of interest, even in this country. Obviously, the weather's not, not very predictable, but um, it's, it's something that a lot of people are interested in. And I'm sure that when eventually the tourism business opens up again, as it undoubtedly will, I think astro-tourism is really going to boom. And can I just ask, if we look a bit further ahead, say to 2022, when um, every finger and toe crossed, we really will be able to start going to uh, further afield again have you got a a, a solar e eclipse in your mind for that uh, that time well i've got a whole i mean i'm planning solar eclipses at the moment up to 2030 <laughs> um i'm not sure you know one never knows how many years one's got but i'm aiming to make the most of it and i'm hoping to get to 25 totals um but but by the time i hang up my eclipse watching <laughs> boots uh, I'd, I'd like to do that. But the real thing I'm excited about for 2022 is the Northern Lights because the sun is getting more and more active. There have been some fantastic Northern Lights displays this past winter, which unfortunately I didn't see, but I, I know about them. But there is nothing to compare with a total. And uh, a total in Antarctica is really something pretty rare. So that's why I'm hoping that 
this December, on the 4th of December, I do actually manage to get there to see it. Well, maybe you can have a word with one of the billionaires who took off into space uh, in the past <laughs> couple of weeks. Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson, see if they can find some way of getting <laughs> you there. Dr. John Mason, MBE, thanks very much. And to find out more about John and his work, search online for South Downs Planetarium. Of course, we'd love to hear your travel tales about peering into the depths of the cosmos. Do tweet us on at you should have. Or you can, of course, leave us an audio message at anchor.fm slash you should have been there. Next week, we will be featuring your stories about the journeys that changed you. But now, from me, Mick Webb. And from me, Simon Calder, goodbye. Goodbye. And from me, John Mason, goodbye. Goodbye.